2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead companies cut costs for a recession that so far hasn't come. And our market guest says they're about to see the benefits of that. He tells us how to position so that you can see the benefits, too. Plus, two more reads on the consumer from two different vantage points today, including one pretty comfy one. Put your feet up. That stock up more than 8% on the back of earnings. We'll speak to the CEO exclusively ahead. And it was Musk CTV. What Elon said about Twitter, Tesla and OpenAI at DealBook yesterday that has everyone still abuzz today will bring you all the headlines. And we begin with the markets. Dom Chu has our numbers. And Dom, it's a pretty mixed bag today.
3: It is a pretty mixed bag for sure, but we're capping off what could be one of the best months for the stock market in years at this point. So if you take a look at the overall picture, the Dow Industrials are currently up 252 points, three quarters of one percent to the upside, 35,681. I'll get more into why that's happening there. It's one stock in particular driving a lot of the gains. The S&P 500 down seven points, 4543 the last trade there. Off about two tenths of one percent, and for context, at the highs of the session, up roughly nine points, and down twelve points at the low. So tilting a little bit more towards the lower end of that trading range so far today. The Nasdaq Composite off two thirds of one percent, 95 points to the downside for the composite index, 14,163 The last trade there. Now, oil prices are a key focus today. We've actually been swaying between solid gains earlier today on expectations about the OPEC plus meeting that was happening, about whether some of these countries were going to extend production cuts into next year. We've got some interesting headlines coming out. I know you'll have much more on that story coming up. But for right now, WTI crude prices, again, solidly higher today, are now down about almost 2 percent, $76.48. And as you can see here. Kind of capped for the time being at that 200-day moving average or longer-term trend line. Keep an eye on that oil trade, especially those longer-term trend lines. And then the stock of the day, I mentioned it with the Dow. Salesforce, the ticker CRM, is up about 6.5%, 15 points to the upside, $245 in change a share. It's adding roughly 100 points to the Dow just by itself after the database software, cloud computing, enterprise software company comes out with better than expected quarterly results and a quarterly forecast that topped estimates underpinning kind of that stronger cloud demand, service demand, that sort of thing, as well as cost cuts. So Salesforce, your stock of the day, up six and a half percent off session highs. Kelly, a Dow component, a so-called blue chip these days. I'll send things back over to you.
2: All right, Don, thank you very much. Let's turn now to the economy where new numbers today bolster the view the Fed's done with rate hikes. Core PCE, the Fed's key inflation gauge, rose just two tenths on the month and three and a half percent year on year. That was about in line with expectations. The headline was up just three percent. Meantime, we got a surge in continuing jobless claims, pointing to some more cooling on the labor front. Chicago PMI was better, though. My next guest thinks both recession and inflation risks remain elevated. Joining me for more is Jay Bryson. He's chief economist at Wells Fargo. Jay, welcome, and and I, I hope I've summarized your views kind of correctly. Which one do you think is the bigger risk here for the moment?
4: Well, Kelly, I do believe that um, inflation is coming down, and I guess that's part of our view of why recession is still, you know, is is still likely out there. As As the inflation rate comes down and the Fed remains on hold, which I think most of us feel that's going to happen for quite some time, the real interest rate, which is that nominal rate, less inflation, is going to drift higher going forward. And that's what really matters to real economic growth at the end of the day. And so what you're going to get in the coming months is a, we'll call it passive Tightening of monetary policy as that real interest rate drifts a little bit higher.
2: So, that said, how much lower do you think the inflation rate's going to go? Because that passive tightening, I mean, it's a fact, but it may be, you know, we're only talking, what, a quarter point here, a half point there. How big a, uh, an impact do you think it'll have?
4: Well, so right now, if you look at, you just mentioned, the, the year-over-year rate of the core PCE inf- uh, inflation, that's kind of what we look at. That's at 3.5% right now. You know, we could see that by the early part of next year going down to 3% on a year-over-year basis. If you look at the last three months and you annualize the change, it's only at 2.4% right now. So that tells us that that, that, long, that year-over-year rate is going to continue to come down. And so the question is, At what point does the Fed pivot and then start to to ease rates? And I I just don't think we're out of the woods yet in terms of the Fed um, uh, starting to ease rates.
2: Right. I think it was John Williams who first raised the idea of them cutting rates in response to this so that they don't like accidentally or passively tighten, as you're describing. But we haven't heard many of them talk about it since. Do you really think that's something they'd act on? I mean, what is your forecast at this point for the first cut?
4: So, Kelly, our, our first cut is, uh, let's call it the June meeting of next year. It's, a little, it's something the timing is a little bit uncertain at this point, but I, I think it's a little bit later rather than sooner. I mean, you're, you're right. There's I don't think there's a consensus there to, uh, to start to, to think about cutting rates um, at this point. But uh, part of our view that the Fed starts to cut next year, and we do have an out-of-consensus view by how much they do cut, is predicated on the fact that you do get a real softening in economic activity, if not a downturn in the middle part of next year. Now, if you don't get that downturn, then the, perhaps the Fed doesn't cut nearly as much. But they definitely will keep, need to keep an eye on that real Fed funds rate as we move forward and the passive tightening that that implies for the economy.
2: So to me, you sound, Jay, like you're on the more cautious side about the economy, on the more dovish side of inflation. Is that right? Or do you think that there is a risk that inflation proves stickier than expected?
4: No, I think that's right, Kelly. I I think I would, you know, I would characterize it the same way. I'm a little bit more cautious about real economic activity in the coming months, a little bit more optimistic than perhaps what the market is in terms of the of the inflation rate. You know, if you just look at the dynamics in inflation and some of the underlying components of inflation over the last few months, it's all, in our view, you know, pretty good developments. It's just that the question is. How proactive is the Fed going to be? And it seems at this point they're still kind of dragging their heels. They're still saying the battle of inflation is not won quite yet. It's still way too early to ease.
2: So final question then, which camp are you in? Even if we acknowledge the slowdown, do you find yourself in more of the soft landing camp or in the harder one?
4: So it depends, yeah, that's, it depends what your, your definition of those things are. So, True. you know, if a hard, if a hard landing is um, you have two quarters or so of negative GDP growth and you have some, um, some decline in employment, then we're is still in that, that sort of camp. That said, I would, what I would acknowledge is if we do have a downturn, you know, next year, I wouldn't expect it to be very deep at all because the underlying fundamentals of the economy at this point generally are still pretty good. It's not like things are real leveraged out. And so if we do do have a downturn, I think we'd be relatively
2: modest. All right, Jay, we'll leave it there. Always good to check in with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Thank you. Jay Bryson. Meantime, crude is moving significantly lower this afternoon after OPEC wrapped up its postponed virtual meeting. Let's get to Brian Sullivan. He's down at the New York Stock Exchange. Brian, what are the headlines and why the intraday reversal that Dom mentioned?
5: Yeah, there's a lot going on with OPEC, and I gotta I gotta just apologize for I was out of the building, I walked out, I thought the meeting, nothing happened, I took off my makeup, so turn away. Um, Here you go, Kelly. Here's the reality. There is no official cut or extension of the existing cuts. There was a report in the journal earlier today that there was going to be a million barrel cut. Oil moved higher, up by a couple of percent. That's an intraday chart of oil. Then we started to realize as we went on that maybe we wouldn't. Stuff's leaking out of the virtual meeting, whatever it may be. Price of oil turned down. Officially, OPEC ended its OPEC plus meeting with no change in the current output situation, minus some small tweaks to Nigeria, Congo, and Angola. We leave. Then individual nations, just a few minutes ago, started coming out and saying they were gonna do voluntary cuts. The biggest headline, Saudi Arabia extending its one million barrel per day cut until the end of the first quarter of next year that was supposed to wipe out at the end of this year. They're extending it by another three months. Russia, of course, which along with Saudi Arabia has been making more cuts. They are going to cut their crude exports exports, not production, but exports by 300,000 barrels a day. Then some other nations, Iraq, 220,000 barrel a day cut UAE, Kuwait again, and then some other nations all in maybe close to about a million barrels per day. But I want to be clear, Kelly that this is not the official or OPEC communique. This is voluntary, meaning they may may not occur, cuts from some of the OPEC plus member nations. Either the market doesn't believe it or wanted to see it be official, which is why
2: we are seeing oil fall. I hope I made that make some sense. <laughs> I guess the only question left, Brian, is, is, Could we yet be surprised again, even as when I checked it, it was down two and a half percent and now it's come back some? It's
5: OPEC. The only thing that would be surprising is if there were no surprises. Right, Kelly? So again, the official OPEC communique ended without a change in macro output minus, again, some small tweaks to Nigeria, Angola and Congo. The biggest headline outside of production and output and everything else that came out of the media, and I think this is a bigger headline than it's getting attention for, is that Brazil will now join the OPEC coalition beginning in January. Hmm. Kelly, Brazil, which a lot of people, don't think of Brazil as an oil powerhouse, but I think they have to. A couple of years ago, Brazil was pumping out about 2.9 million barrels per day. That's a lot. Now, they're right around 3.5 million barrels per day. And OPEC estimates they could hit 3.7. You factor in the additional barrels out of Guyana from Exxon and Hess, which is going to become Chevron. And non-OPEC production, including America, which is at a record 13.2 million barrels, is the reason OPEC continues to cut. But now Brazil Hmm. is joining that alliance. I think that's a big deal for OPEC and probably a big loss for the U.S., I think, in, or the Western Hemisphere. Right. How about that?
2: No, I was, think, I was thinking the same thing. If they're doing so, it's presumably to help maybe support the price in the future, you know, agreeing Correct. on, yeah, and casting a, a bigger a bigger shadow. Brian, I, I, thank you. No one no one could really have wrapped that up quite the same. We'll let you I'm go not, get makeup. I'm not even sure what I said. <laughs> Kelly, thank you. Well, see you last call,
5: 7 p.m. Brian Sullivan. Bye-bye.
2: Meantime, you heard Steve Leisman talking earlier this week about the idea of the pre-session. Did companies cut back to prepare for a downturn and actually help to stave it off? My next guest says yes, and that firms will start to reap the benefits of getting lean in 2024, calling it the year to exhale. Joining me with how to position John Augustine as chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank. Ah, oh, Sounds so nice. It
6: does sound nice. Hope it, hope it works.
2: Hope it works. Uh, what What could make it work? What would make it not work?
6: Well, central banks stay on the sidelines, first off. That makes it work. And then other markets stay kind of range bound. I mean, we're already seeing that a little bit in stocks, bonds, and and crude oil, as Brian was just talking about. So range bound, exhale.
2: Right, and I think that as people look at the market today and they go, we got the Dow up 7 tenths, the NASDAQ down 8 tenths. We've got crude down, but bond yields up. Is that just end of month kind of trading activity, or or how do we read that?
6: It could be, or just range bound activity. We, We think it's just range bound. We still think there's a positive tilt to markets. It'll get tested again December 13th, Fed update. Hmm. But for now, positive tilt to markets, we would say.
2: And a lot of people say the reason, you know, the uh, S&P's November gain, according to Bespoke, is one of the best in history. It absolutely has ripped. Is that literally just the flip side of falling bond yields, or do you think that's sustainable even if bond yields stop falling from here?
6: Partially. So there were two new players, two new sectors that helped drive stocks. November, REITs and financials Mm. were the two new sectors that helped drive, along with the Magnificent Seven that's been talked about. Then moving into now January, now is the recession is, is talked about is the precession, so to speak, and earnings over is the profits recession of the S and P five hundred over. We think it is. We think profits accelerate from here. We're a little bit below consensus from our equity team at Huntington. But nevertheless, profits should be headed up.
2: So it's an interesting divide because we were just speaking with Jay Bryson earlier. He's a little bit cautious on the economy. So he also acknowledges the profits have held up better than expected, but expects them to slow down again. So I guess whether they will or whether they won't simply depends on your view on the macro or, or how it evolves.
6: Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting summer next year. Do central banks pivot? Does the economy pivot? Next summer, when it heats up again, that's when it's gonna get interesting in our view. Mm -hmm. For now, hold on to what you have. Be patient, that's what's worked.
2: You mentioned financials, which has been kind of a a pariah since March. You know, there have been times when they've rebounded, but largely speaking, the the sector has gone nowhere. It's been a problem for the Russell 2000 and so forth. You think we've turned a corner or was this, to use the phrase, a dead cat bounce? The,
6: The expectation is, and our equity team thinks the same, that the yield curve writes itself second half next year. If that expectation holds, financials are gonna to continue to do well, stock market's looking ahead of that, to that. So that to us, interest rates are gonna be a big call on that, yield curve, big call on that.
2: Do you feel uncomfortable saying the yield curve goes back into positive territory or whatever, you know, helps these results, even though that's never happened before and we've been able to skirt a downturn? Uh,
6: it depends on how it works, bull steepener, bear, Bear Steepner. So it depends on what comes down. Is it short rates that come down, long rates that go up? Short rates coming down is what's favored mm-hmm. in markets. That's the expectation right now, or the consensus expectation. That's why we say next next year is going to get more interesting when the weather heats up.
2: Right, if, if the long end starts to go up, then it's a different that's kind of a story.
6: Yeah. That, That's a tougher one. Yeah, That's a tougher one, as we found out this summer, that's a tougher one for markets to take.
2: Last thing, any stocks in particular that you think are really attractive here? Think of three
6: groups moving into next year. Energy, which you just we just heard from Brian, it's tough to call. Mm-hmm. Energy, it's mm-hmm. kind of all over the place, price oil. So that's number one, have some representation in energy. Number you, two- You like
2: it despite the fact that it's tough yeah. to call?
6: Yep. Yep. Like the cash flow. And by the way, they have the lowest earnings estimate view for next year, which they probably won't be that bad. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the base case there. Second, probably wanted I want we want to have a defense company. So our equity team has some defense companies because of the replenishment of weapons. Mm-hmm. Nothing new. Replenishment. Third thing is financials, is people look at their balance sheets and move out of cash, which is going on now. Mm -hmm. So at, at Huntington, that's what we're thinking about moving forward.
2: When you say people are moving out of cash and therefore you like financials, you mean what by that?
6: That's one of the sectors we like. Moving because out of cash people means- people
2: are going to move their investment portfolios out of cash or their deposits out of deposits cash?
6: Deposits out of cash. They're moving both ways right now into stocks and into bonds.
2: hmm And so you think that favors the financials in kind of two different ways?
6: Yeah. I mean, financials will benefit yield curve and financials have been beaten down. Financials have high yields. So they have all the characteristics, low valuations, et cetera. So they have a lot of characteristics in their
2: favor. And you guys are generally single stock? Do you like that better than sector thematic?
6: Single STOCK. YOU KNOW, WE WORK WITH OUR FINANCIAL ADVISOR PARTNERS ON A LOT OF FUNDS. WE WORK WITH OUR WEALTH STRATEGY PARTNERS ON A LOT OF PRIVATE. THEN IN THE MIDDLE, A LOT OF INDIVIDUAL STOCKS AND BONDS.
2: ALL RIGHT. JUST HAD TO ASK, YOU KNOW, IN CHARLIE MUNGER'S uh, HONOR THIS WEEK. JOHN, THANKS SO MUCH FOR YOUR TIME TODAY. APPRECIATE IT. THANKS FOR HAVING US. JOHN AUGUSTINE WITH Huntington PRIVATE BANK. Coming up with Cyber Monday now outpacing Black Friday in terms of sales. How are retail REITs navigating the holiday season? We'll ask the head of one luxury mall owner and developer next. Plus from slamming Sam to warning about AI. Everyone's still talking about what Elon Musk said at yesterday's Dealbook Summit. We'll bring you the highlights and the fallout from companies ranging from Microsoft to Tesla. As we go to break, the major averages are on track to snap a three month losing streak. These are the month to date gains. The NASDAQ up 10%, the S&P up eight, best month since the summer of last year for those two. The Dow, helped by Salesforce and UnitedHealth, pushing to its highest level of 2023 with an 8% gain as well for November. We're back after this.
7: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
8: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, we're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. The clear winner of the holiday shopping season so far, online sales, which surged on both Black Friday and Cyber Monday. But mall traffic was also still strong, although spending in stores was down in real terms. And luxury spending has been surprisingly weak. My next guest has a front row seat to all of this and how it's shaking out for malls and retailers this year. For more, I'm joined by Nate Forbes, managing partner of luxury mall owner and developer, The Forbes Company. Nate, great to have you back, welcome.
9: Thanks. Thanks for having me back.
2: I wonder if the last time we talked was still in the midst of the pandemic. It's nice to see the office behind you.
9: (laughs) I think it was in the midst of the pandemic, but we're all back in full force and and getting a lot done and really trying to stay ahead of the curve in what's going on in today's retail environment.
2: What is that? Please do tell. What is the curve? I mean, the curve to me seems, you know, online, mobile phone, but we still like going to the mall and, and having the shopping experience. And what's going on with the luxury sector?
9: Yeah, there, there's a lot of things in play right now. I think the the traffic over the holiday weekend, the Thanksgiving Black Friday weekend was really strong, led by Gen Zers. Gen Zers have been out in force this past weekend. And a lot of the brands that they know and love and are tried and true are doing very, very well. Abercrombie and Fitch had a great weekend. They're showing big increases this year. A lot of the Sun showing great increases. Those that really appeal to the Gen Zers, have been really strong in what they've been able to do in terms of attracting those customers. And what we're finding is that both online brick and mortar, online purchases and brick and mortar social experiences are working together. Mm -hmm. And we're really showing great velocity in terms of business, trips to the shopping center, and in our leasing efforts to keep all these properties fully occupied.
2: I was really struck. And, you know, in in order for me to get the pulse of Gen Z, I have to subscribe to newsletters about that because that's how old I'm getting now. But, you know, and you see what's happening with these shopping bags and the shopping trips and the influencers are showing off what they got at Old Navy. And it's it almost makes me smile. I'm like, this is what it was like 20 years ago. And I guess it's the same as it ever was. That said, in real terms, in-store Black Friday spending, well, let's put it this way, nominal in-store, in-store was up 1.1%. And and the nominal figure is almost unchanged from where we were about a decade ago. So, I'm sort of confused. Like the traffic is there, but I don't know if it's discounting. I don't know if people just aren't maybe pulling the trigger on purchases, or if there's something to read through on the consumer this year.
9: Yeah, what it's really hard to measure is the halo effect that the brick and uh, mortar stores mean to the retailers. And that the halo effect means if you have a brick and mortar store in one of our Uh, retail shopping centers you make a trip to the mall you may not buy on that trip to the shopping center but you'll then go home or on your mobile device during that shopping trip and purchase from that retailer online or through your mobile device so the halo effect of what that visit to brick and mortar means to the retailer is very very strong so in total terms we may not see big increases we are seeing increases retailers are seeing increases because that halo effect that they have by having a presence in brick and mortar is very strong.
2: All right, so you guys are always spending, you're always investing, you're always trying to stay. As we've learned from being in this space, you have to be the best mall or you're you know you're very quickly gonna be marginalized. What are you investing in, in terms of 2024, 2025 even?
9: I mean, we're really looking at one of a kind concepts. So we wanna be first to market in all of our shopping centers and have a unique retail offering in all of these markets. So 45 percent of our stores in, say, the Somerset Collection up here in Troy, Michigan, are their only stores in the state of Michigan. Orlando is the same way at Mall of Millennia. Almost 50 percent of our stores are their only full price stores in the Orlando uh, MSA. Hmm. So we're really focused on unique to market, first to market, best in class retail offering in all retail categories.
2: Is there some truth to the idea that middle class is in a way outperforming luxury uh, space right now?
9: You know what, this has been a long conversation that we've been having over the last several months. We are still seeing the luxury shopper show up, maybe with not the same level of veracity of buying and purchasing, but they're still interested, they're still showing up, and they're still buying, investing in pieces that can stand the test of time and have timeless designs that they'll wear for many years to come. So it's not gone away, it's just taking a little bit of a pause, but there's still a pension, for better shopping and upscale, uh, better merchandise for our consumers.
2: All right, Nate, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And Nate Forbes joining me to talk retail. Coming up, a buying freeze is to be expected when mortgage rates surge over 8%. But today's weak housing data is even worse than during the financial crisis. We'll bring you the shocking numbers and what they mean for builders and lenders ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at November's number one name in the s and I couldn't guess it. Uh, if you think you know it, it's up 42% this month. Tweet me at KellyCNBC. We will reveal it after the break, along with more of the month's biggest movers.
8: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, we're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
0: Welcome
2: back to the exchange. Markets are mixed right now. The Dow higher by 250 points, helped by Salesforce, United Health, while the S&P is down 10. The Nasdaq's down eight tenths of a percent today. insulet was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. The medical device maker is up more than 40% in four weeks after starting the month near its lowest level since the pandemic. You might recall Jeffrey's Matthew Taylor saying it was a buy on this show in early October. Shares are still down 35% since Jan 1, as the weight loss drug boom has taken that market by storm. What else is leading the S&P's strong month? How about Expedia? Best month since 2009, up 41%, around a 52-week high. Generac also on track for its best month in a decade, although still 25% below its recent high. Elsewhere, PDD and Datadog are duking it out for the top spot in the Nasdaq 100 with about 43 percent gains. Crowdstrike a distant third, up 33 percent. And the fight for number one in the Dow is even closer with Salesforce and Boeing neck and neck. 23 percent gains. Intel as well. Uh, all three of these names having a pretty strong month. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler.
7: Kelly, thank you very much. The billionaire Harlan Crow and conservative activist Leonard Leo will be summoned to testify in a Supreme Court ethics probe. 11 Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee approved subpoenas for the two men today, even as Republican committee members walked out of the room during the vote. The Supreme Court adopted a new code of conduct after reports came out earlier this year claiming that Justice Clarence Thomas accepted trips and gifts from Crow and that Justice Samuel Alito took an undisclosed fishing trip organized by Leo. Dallas police issued a warrant today for Buffalo Bills player Von Miller According to police, a preliminary investigation determined that the former Super Bowl MVP assaulted a pregnant woman during a fight Wednesday morning. Police say Miller was gone by the time officers arrived and the victim was treated for minor injuries at the scene. The state of Maine is offering to cover college tuition and fees at its seven state schools for victims of last month's mass shooting in Lewiston that left 18 people dead families of those killed are also eligible. The state says as many as 80 people could be eligible for this tuition relief. Kelly, back to you.
2: Wow. Tyler, thank you. And I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Elon Musk didn't hold back at yesterday's DealBook Summit with Andrew Ross Sorkin. His controversial message to advertisers on X, that's getting the most attention. But he did touch on Tesla as well and OpenAI, where he was an early investor, saying the AI company should maybe consider a name change.
1: OpenAI was actually started, and it was meant to be open source. Uh, I named it uh, OpenAI uh, after open source. Um, it is in fact closed source. Super close. It should be. It should be named, renamed Super Closed Source for maximum profit. AI. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so. Super close. S C. Anyway, we'll run through all the highlights and a rapid fire rundown next here on the Exchange. Stay with us. Welcome back. Elon Musk giving a broad and candid interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin yesterday, breaking both news and maybe FCC rules as he dropped F bombs, discussed everything from the advertiser exodus from X to the Tesla Cybertruck, which starts getting delivered today. Talked about AI, of course. Let's dig into how his comments could impact his vast companies. Steve Kovac is here to talk. Well, OpenAI is not his company, although it sort of was. Uh, he co-founded it, as he, as he mentioned. Philebeau is going to look at Tesla's fallout for us and Julia Borson on what is next for X at this point. Uh, Steve, uh, let's start with OpenAI. Here's what Musk had to say about the drama between Sam Altman and the board.
1: I think Ilya actually has a strong moral compass. Um, he thinks about, he, you know, he, he really sweats it over questions of what is right. Um, and if Ilya felt strongly enough to want to, you know, fire Sam. Well, I think the world should know what was that reason. Have you talked to him? I've reached out, but he, he doesn't want to talk to anyone. Have you talked to other people behind the scenes? Is this all happening? I've talked to a lot of people. As n- nobody, I've not found anyone who knows why. Have, have you? I think we are all still trying to find out. I mean, look, one of two things is is either it was a serious thing and we should know what it is, or it was not a serious thing and and then the board should resign.
2: Those are two, uh, two pretty powerful options there. Okay, the OpenAI board, Steve, also had some more updates today. What are those?
10: Yeah, so th- this was kind of, Kelly, uh, last night solidifying all the changes and back and forth that we've witnessed over the last 10 or 11 or 12 days, however long it's been, uh, basically formally putting uh, Sam Altman back as CEO, formally establishing these uh, new uh, board members with Larry Summers and Brett Taylor, the former co-CEO of Salesforce, as the head of that board. But also the most interesting part of this announcement was Microsoft not getting a voting board seat, but a non-voting observer role on the board now that could change eventually of course because they're still doing an investigation into what happened uh, with the firing of Sam Altman unclear why they even need to do an investigation when there are literally like four people who know what what really went down, but that doesn't matter. That's what they say they're going to do. And more governance changes coming. But, and, you know, I'll point back to uh, CEO of Microsoft site, Nadella, who was on our air last week after all this happened and when he came on our air kind of walking back whether or not Altman would be a Microsoft employee, also saying the one thing definitive, he wanted governance changes. And, you know, it's very clear the, the role that Nadella played uh, during the New negotiations over that crazy weekend when everyone was trying to figure out what was going on with OpenAI, uh, they still have no, they, meaning Microsoft, still has no real power um, over what this company's uh, future is. They they can observe. Maybe that is a good thing if there's this observer role. But uh, as far as making decisions, uh, they're still at the whims of this funky structure uh, that the OpenAI still operates under, Kelly. I
2: just think it's interesting how the conversation so quickly around the OpenAI debacle was, almost kind of this knee-jerk defense of Sam, whereas Elon Musk, who knows the Sam situation, knows the company almost better than anyone from its early founding, has, has gone out there and kind of taken a different tone and almost uh, given his initial kind of vote of confidence to Ilya. And, and that's, not, that's not something that we've really heard a lot about in recent weeks. Yeah. And I'm not
10: super uh, convinced. Musk knows. I mean, he even admitted he doesn't really know what's going on there. He hasn't been involved in o- OpenAI in several years now. I mean, he's this whole uh, every time he comments on OpenAI, you know, it's very sour grapes. He used to be part of the hottest technology startup on the planet, working on the most innovative stuff. Instead, he went out and bought Twitter. And we know how that's going for him right now. So. You know, it's hard to really take what he says seriously because he just doesn't know what's going on behind closed doors. Yes, Ilya is a very important part of the company. Uh, They did announce last night uh, that they're still trying to figure out what his role would be. So it sounds like he's not out of the company, Um, But it does also keep in mind, this was one of the board members who voted to um, fire Sam Altman, but at the same time came out on X just a few uh, a day later saying he regretted that decision. Right. No. And
2: if he if we got more of the full story, it'd be a lot easier to, to know exactly what went on here. Steve, thank you. For now, we appreciate it. We're less than a week away, meantime, uh, from CNBC's work summit, The Promise and Peril of AI. You can hear from experts on how it'll transform the future of work. And to register, you can scan that QR code on the screen or visit cnbcevents.com. Now, Musk also addressed Tesla and its place at the top of the EV market. Took a moment to toot his horn as well.
1: We focus on making the best products. And Tesla has gotten to where it's gotten with no advertising at all. I understand that. Tesla currently sells uh, two, twice as much uh, in terms of electric vehicles as the rest of uh, electric car makers in, in the United States combined. Tesla has done more to help the environment than uh, all other companies combined. Uh, it would be fair to say that, therefore, as a leader of the company, I've done more for the environment than everyone else, a- a- any single human on Earth.
2: <laughs> I mean, Phil, I don't know, he has a point.
11: He does have a valid point. Look, nobody's denying the fact that Elon Musk will go down in history as the person who made electric vehicles more than just a niche. And they were around before Tesla, but nobody took them serious. They were very, very small number of vehicles. It truly was a very niche idea. He made it mainstream. He made Tesla into a mainstream automaker. And so he deserves to get the credit that he believes he he should get there. Is he more influential in terms of environmental policy uh, or has done more for the environment than anybody else ever? I don't know. I'll leave that up for other people to make a, that kind of a decision. But he does deserve credit for taking Tesla from, well, that's kind of interesting to make electric vehicles, into being a mainstream company. And clearly, they lead the way when it comes to EVs.
2: I'm just thinking about, you know, the Dan Ives of the world who are bullish on Tesla, you know, love what he's done, bullish on its prospects, but still sort of frustrated by the distraction that uh, X, the platform X or his comments there are just Musk in general can sometimes sure. be. Um, how do we square that with what is also, you know, maturing market for EVs? Tesla hasn't had a lot of new models. So the Cybertruck rollout is pretty significant today from that point of view to kind of get that buzz back.
11: Well, two things. First of all, this concern that X hurts sales for for Tesla, you can take it either way, Kelly. I've heard people say, and I had a, a friend who messaged me yesterday. said, love what he had to say about Bob Iger. Can't wait to see the Cybertruck. Hmm. There are as many people who say that as there are people who are like, look, I don't like the way he uh, he comments on different things, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So it goes both ways in regards to good or bad with re, uh, with X influence on Tesla. With regard to whether or not the Cybertruck could influence sales, this is a niche product. I cannot say this enough. This is a product that will be slowly ramping in production over the next couple of years. They're only delivering 10 today. This is not going to move the needle near term. Could it move the needle, let's say in 2025? Yes, if it takes off, if production ramps up, but we're a long ways from 2025. One last thing that it could do, there's this halo effect. Could it bring people into a Tesla gallery in Southern California because they see the Cybertruck going down the street? Yeah, that's possible. You always wanna have some buzz in the auto industry. And frankly, Tesla really hasn't had buzz. It's been a very steady march in terms of if you want an EV, it's them and everyone else. Yeah, no, I think
2: it'll be interesting in that regard to see if they can kind of reignite that excitement. Phil, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Our Phil Lebeau. Meantime, what's grabbing the most attention from yesterday's interview? Probably Musk's comments about advertisers. Take a listen.
1: I I hope they stop. You hope? uh, Don't advertise. You don't want want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go yourself. But go yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't advertise.
2: <laughs> you can hear the chuckles from the audience, the gasps, Julia. I, I can't imagine Linda Yaccarino's reaction is that she's hired basically for her advertising expertise. But Musk is trying to tell uh, the group that, you know, every time he has the chance, he keeps saying, this is the, what, the way I'm going and, and, you know, whatever the results may be.
12: Yeah, I mean, look, he didn't exactly work to reassure advertisers that their content would be safe on the platform. He said, we're a free and open platform. He talked about his support for free speech. And Lindy Yaccarino, she backed him up. She posted on X um, describing um, his interview as wide ranging and candid. um, And he said, we're a platform that allows people to make their own decisions. And here's my perspective when it comes to advertising. X is standing at a unique and amazing intersection of free speech and Main Street. But Kelly, we can't ignore here the fact that X is an ad-supported platform. Yes, they have a new subscription service. Yes, they're trying to grow their subscription dollars, but for now it's operated and run based on the fact that it's advertising that is the, the basic business model here. And Elon Musk is saying that he understands that uh, that it may not continue to generate ad revenue. So um, just worth pointing out that up until October, um, Censor Tower estimates that ad revenue was down about 55% from last year. And then in November, there were all these other controversies and all um, these advertisers that decided to pause advertising, including not just Disney but big brands such as Apple. And according to Censor Tower, Apple was was the fourth largest advertiser on X um, through October. So we're talking about meaningful advertisers saying, "Hey, this is not what I want to be associated with."
2: Yeah, in a weird way, he might be trying to court them back by saying, you know, if you are attracted to the platform because of, you know, the dynamism that I, like look at the the conversation that was happening after his comments, you know, something some sort of saying, you know, take it or leave it and, and trying to almost entice them back that way. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's a pretty high stakes gamble to be running, uh, not least given what he paid for the platform. Julia, we appreciate it. Our Julia Borson reporting. And again, those were all Musk's comments from DealBook yesterday with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Coming up, pending home sales falling to their lowest level ever last month. We'll dig into the data. The exchange is back in two with the Dow up 269. Welcome back. Further signs of a slowdown in the housing market. Pending home sales just dropped to a record low. October's reading was even worse than what we saw during the great financial crisis. Diana Olick has all the dirty details. Diana?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Kelly, and it was actually better than the street expected, but pending home sales did drop one and a half percent in October month to month to the lowest level since this index from the realtors started back in 2001 which of course was well before the financial crisis. Now sales down eight and a half percent from October of last year. This measures signed contracts on existing homes. So it's an indicator of closed sales one to two months from now, but more importantly, it's the most recent look at housing because it represents people out shopping in October, which was when mortgage rates shot higher, briefly going over 8% on the 30 year fix. Now rates have since pulled back to around 7.3% now, but the realtors continue to say it's not just high rates, but still very low. Low supply of homes for sale. Can't seem to say that enough. Now, pending home sales fell everywhere in the nation month to month, except in the Northeast. They fell most steeply in the West, which, of course, is where home prices are highest. Sales were down everywhere compared with a year ago. And the realtors also noted that sales of homes priced above $750,000 have been increasing simply because there's more supply on the high end of the market. Now, I would note one thing that unlike during the financial crisis, sales of newly built homes are still holding up pretty well. Kelly, you may remember they did not back then.
2: So it's not everywhere. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Our Diana Olick. Check out the mortgage lenders. Loan Depot, the outperformer, still managing to eke out a gain today while shares of Rocket are down 2%. But November has been a strong month for these names. United Wholesale Mortgage is up 66%. Rocket shares up about half of that, 33%. Loan Depot up about 13%. All three are higher year-to-date as well, so just uh, some pretty significant moves there. Still to come, shares of Lazy Boy are higher on stronger-than-expected earnings, but management issuing a warning in their forward guidance. We'll talk to CEO Melinda Whittington in an exclusive interview next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Lazy Boy are higher today after the company reported top and bottom line beats. They also boosted their dividend by 10%. Joining me now to discuss is Lazy Boy CEO, Melinda Whittington. That's the second time. Whittington, it's an easy last name. Melinda, welcome back and thank
13: you for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Kelly. No problem. What were some of the highlights? Um, you know, strong execution. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, the the consumer is is challenged for furniture and that has been the case for a while now. Um, but our brand is standing strong. Our execution in store is strong. Our manufacturing has, uh, you know, regained momentum post pandemic. And so, um, I think we, uh, We continue to out-execute in a challenging environment. This is a really interesting case study. Uh, People over
2: at Piper Sandler have been putting together categories where we've seen price deflation. Furniture is one of them, maybe to the range of 13%, but we still have some ways to go to be kind of back to trend. And as I mean, I think your own sales in Q2 were down 16% year on year, but look at the stock. So- Talk to us about what it's like managing your company through that disinflationary or outright deflationary trend. How, when you say strong execution, what does that mean?
13: Sure. Well, well, maybe a couple of things. First of all, our delivered sales being down year on year are really around recovery last year from a very large backlog because of the pandemic disruption. So last year, out of like $2.3 billion in sales, 300 of that was delivering backlog on a six to nine month backlog from the previous year. So when I look at what our consumer is doing, particularly in our stores, our consumer, a new written business, is, is flattish even slightly up year to date. Um, and so, you know, that that's an important piece. As, as far as pricing, we're pretty stable on pricing. The industry, which has been reticent to price in the past, went up over the course of the pandemic, 30 to even 35, 40%. Um, For us, it was about 30% overall, and a good two-thirds of that has held. Now, we watch it every day. We've sharpened some opening price points and and continue to do that. But really, pricing isn't isn't so much of a factor. So the year-on-year delivered is about just last year catching up on backlog. Our consumer, furniture consumer trends are pretty tough right now. Our consumer, particularly in our own retail, where we can really own that entire experience, are holding up um, with, with a lot of good work. Um, And then, you know, we continue to believe we're really we're investing in our future and strengthening our capabilities for the long term, because eventually we know there's a housing shortage in this country. Eventually, the trends will turn positive for us and we'll get a little bit of a tailwind on top of the strong execution and strategic investments we've been making.
2: Your shares are up 51 percent year to date, which, again, is pretty striking when you're in a declining nominal environment. When do you expect to turn a corner on that front?
13: You know the the furniture industry has been challenged for a bit now, probably over a year. Um, you, you were just talking about you know housing transactions, mortgage rates just a few minutes ago. Those are those are definitely headwinds for the furniture industry. Um, What we're doing, we believe the power of our brand definitely stands strong. We are investing into that. We just in August launched our long live the lazy campaign which is the most consumer data-based campaign in our history. We're working on having the right products, the right messaging, and then the right consumer experience in our stores or wherever you're shopping for lazy boy furniture. We're going to keep out executing there and, meanwhile, investing in the company for the future. Um, it's anybody's guess when, when that consumer is going to turn. But eventually, we know, again, there, there's a shortage of housing and 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 that tailwind will come as well. We look forward to that day. Oh, I can only imagine.
2: Uh, you know, again, the, the, there will be case studies written about uh, the pandemic years and how to get through them. And I think you guys are right right there at the forefront of how to do that. Melinda, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Good to be back. Melinda Whittington of Lazy Boy. And that does it for The Exchange. Up next on Power Lunch, we're exploring another consumer angle in our edition of the econ ecosystem. It's the dollar stores. Tyler's getting ready for that. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.